This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Quicksand. We here at the Word of the Week have been wondering whatever happened to quicksand. Yes, quicksand. Once upon a time, it was a pretty ubiquitous thing. You'd see it in movies and video games all the time. Remember Wesley falling into the lightning sand in The Princess Bride? Or the heart-wrenching scene of Atreyu trying to drag his horse Artax out of the sucking mud of the aptly named Swamp of Sadness? There was quicksand in Blazing Saddles, in Kroll, Disney's Jungle Book, Swiss Family Robinson, and dozens of other movies and television shows. Hundreds, really. And in video games, Link and Mega Man, Sonic the Hedgehog, Samus Aran, Banjo and Kazooie, Laura Croft and Guybrush, they've all dealt with quicksand, among many others. We remember the first time we dealt with quicksand in a video game very clearly. It was Super Mario Bros. 2, the American version. The desert worlds, World 2 and World 6, were just full of this stuff. Masses of sandy ground animated to flow off the bottom of the screen like water. Once you touched it, you had to jump repeatedly to free yourself. You pulled in too deep, and it carries you off the screen. One life down, two to go. Of course, these days, if you bring up Super Mario Bros. 2 on the internet, absolutely everyone expects you to point out the particular bit of nerd trivia about how the game we got in America is Super Mario Bros. 2 wasn't actually the real sequel to Super Mario Bros. at all. It was a different game with a coat of Mario-colored paint slapped on it because we Americans were too weak sauce to handle the real sequel. But we don't need to point that out. Partly because everyone who cares about such things already knows that story. But partly because that story isn't precisely true. The truth is, the game that was not a Mario game, but a different game with Mario characters swapped in, it actually started as a Mario game before different characters got swapped in. And then it got swapped back. Did you know that? Because every Fun Facts About Mario Games YouTube video forgets to mention that part. Not that we're bitter. The story, and we promise we'll keep this brief because we already devoted an entire episode to video game history vis-a-vis -vis natural hazards. The story is this. In 1983, the American video game industry crashed. People stopped buying home video game consoles. But in Japan, video games were becoming a hot item. So Nintendo released the Nintendo Family Computer, or Famicom, a home video game console. In 1985, they decided to take their chances and create the American version of their game system, the Nintendo Entertainment System. And they packaged it with the first Super Mario Bros. game to sweeten the deal. Both were hits in North America. Meanwhile, in Japan, Nintendo was already fixing to release a sequel to Super Mario Bros. because people had been playing Super Mario Bros. for years already. The sequel was based on the same engine as the original. It had a few new features, but it was mostly new levels for the same game. And most of those new levels had been culled from coin-operated versions of the original Super Mario Bros. called Versus Super Mario Bros. Those levels were all advanced challenge levels designed to test players already skilled at the original game. So the whole thing looked like a clone of the original Super Mario Bros., only it was redesigned to be much more challenging. Following the successful launch of the Nintendo system in America, 
there was talk of bringing the sequel to Super Mario Bros. over. But the series was still new to Americans, and they were concerned that it might make the series appear to be stagnant because it looked the same, and worry audiences that the series was unapproachably difficult. So Nintendo of America asked for their own unique sequel, something that would remain approachable to the fledgling video game audience and show some stylistic evolution. The project was passed to a programmer named Kinsuki Tanabe. He started developing an engine that would allow for vast improvements to the Super Mario model. It focused on two-player cooperative play and allowed the players to throw each other around like projectiles. It also allowed the players to explore worlds that scrolled left and right, up and down, instead of simply moving to the right all the time. But the game was a beast. It was too complex for the Nintendo's hardware to run, and the project gradually fell by the wayside. Some months later, though, Nintendo got a contract with Fuji Television Media to create a game for an upcoming media expo using a variety of characters from Fuji's various products. The expo was called Yume Kojo, The Dream Factory, and the game was thusly called Yume Kojo Doki Doki Panic. The Doki Doki part is a Japanese phrase that reflects a rapid, excited heartbeat. The Japanese language has a lot of onomatopoeic phrases like that, phrases that reflect sounds or other sensory impressions. The characters had an Arabian theme. Nintendo's programmers dusted off the bits and pieces of Kintsuki Tanabe's game and helped him to make it work with Nintendo's hardware. They dropped the Mario game elements, the two-player focus, and had a working game. And soon thereafter, they dropped the Fuji mascots, swapped the Mario elements back in, and they had the American Mario sequel they wanted. That was finally released in 1988. So it was a Mario sequel after all. And then it wasn't. And then it was again. Take that, YouTubers. But we digress. We were talking about the ubiquity of quicksand in games and movies. Once upon a time, every adventure had a scene where a character would suddenly stop and announce, I'm sinking! and someone else would helpfully observe, it's quicksand. And then excitement would ensue. Then, except for that one unmentionable Indiana Jones sequel, we'd rather pretend didn't happen. Nothing. Quicksand was gone. We're not the first to wonder about this either. A few years ago, a man named Daniel Engbar, a columnist at Slate Magazine, found himself wondering the same thing. Whatever happened to Quicksand? And he discovered that there were a number of strangely devoted fans of Quicksand out there. Like, really strangely devoted. Quicksand fetishists. We're not going to go into that. But what he discovered was that some of those people had cataloged the uses of Quicksand in popular culture over the years. And it really had been ubiquitous. And not just as a cheap adventure trope. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. described America as being stuck in the quicksand of racial injustice in his famous I Have a Dream speech. Before it was called a quagmire, the Vietnam War was called the Quicksand War. And it was so steeped in the consciousness of everyone between the 1930s and the 1990s that when NASA was planning the Apollo moon landing, they addressed the concern that the moon's surface might turn out to be a mass of dry quicksand and the lander might simply sink into the moon and never be seen again. 
In marketing terms, Quicksand had an immensely high Q-score. Yes, that's an actual thing. The Q-score is a tool developed by marketing guru Jack Landis of Marketing Evaluations Incorporated in the early 1960s as a way to quantifiably measure the popularity of a person or thing. It doesn't just measure how many people know about a thing, or even consume a particular piece of media or whatever. It is a measure of popularity. What you do for the thing you want to measure the popularity of is you do a massive consumer survey. Ask people if they've ever heard of the thing at all. And of the people who've heard of the thing, ask them whether they like the thing or not. On a scale, obviously. Dividing the numbers gives you a popularity quotient, a Q-score. Marketing evaluations is still measuring Q-scores today. They even maintain a huge database at qscores.com if you want to check out which cartoons and brands and performers and dead people are the most popular. Really, they're happy to help you out. For a fee. Now, quicksand was a trope in a lot of adventure movies, but sometime around the 60s it suddenly entered the public consciousness in a big way. Hence its use in speeches about Vietnam and civil rights and the fear that the lunar lander would sink. And isn't it a strange coincidence that in 1962, a very popular movie, a multiple Oscar winner widely considered to be a masterpiece of cinema, featured a very poignant scene in which, during a dangerous desert crossing, a young boy is suddenly caught in quicksand and dragged down to his death while the titular character and the boy's mother try and ultimately fail to save him. That movie? Lawrence of Arabia. Now, Lawrence of Arabia is an absolute classic of a movie. Directed by David Lean, starring Peter O'Toole and Alec Obi-Wan Guinness, it's part adventure movie, part war movie, and part character drama. And also part biopic. Because it is based on an actual British World War I lieutenant named Thomas Edward Lawrence. And the movie is a dramatization of his heroic efforts to unite the Arab tribes against the Ottoman Turks during World War I, something widely thought to be impossible. Now, the Ottoman Empire was an old empire. It began in Asia Minor in the 14th century and was named for its first ruler, Osman I, who was a nomadic war chief and a descendant of Turkish warriors known as Ghazi. Those warriors were united by their faith in Islam and their war against the Christian Byzantine state. They even occupied Byzantium for a while. But when their power faltered, they ended up under the military occupation of the Mongols from Central Asia. Osman ended up the prince of a small border state after the Mongols destroyed one of his tribe's rival tribes. And thus he rose to power. Now, Osman's state became a rallying point for the nomadic Muslim refugees left wandering by various wars, tribal battles, events in the Crusades, and the wars with the Mongols. So his numbers swelled. And as Byzantium continued to decline, he took advantage of their weakness to expand his territory and rally more Muslims to his cause. Eventually, they were able to defeat Byzantium, occupy Constantinople, and the Ottoman Empire became a major power in Asia Minor and parts of the Middle East for 600 years. Of course, not everyone was happy to live under the Ottoman Empire. See, the empire included many different ethnic groups. Kurds, Greeks, Armenians, Bosnians, Serbians, Persians, Arabs, and others, under primarily Turkish rule. In the mid-1800s, various ethnic groups started to chafe against the Ottoman rule. 
feeling that their own cultural heritage was being subsumed by Turkish culture and traditions. In 1908, this came to a head when a group of Turkish nationalists, the Committee of Union and Progress, or colloquially, the Young Turks, seized control of the Ottoman government. By this time, Greece had already broken away and formed an independent state, so other ethnic groups also attempted to break away. The seizure of the government and the many actions taken to enforce cultural changes in the Ottoman Empire galvanized the more traditional Arab groups. But the Arabs themselves were not terribly unified, having been descended from a multitude of tribal groups, many of whom had rivalries against each other. This was what was going on in the Ottoman Empire when suddenly it found itself at war with Britain, France, and Russia when World War I broke out in 1914 as a result of similar tensions exploding into an assassination in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It was then that a disgruntled local emir, a governor, of the Islamic holy province of Mecca, Sharif Hussein ibn Ali, made it known that he was prepared to go into open rebellion against the Ottoman Empire. And Sharif Hussein seemed like he might be able to unify the Arab tribes in rebellion. He was descended, after all, from the same tribe that the Prophet Muhammad was descended from. Such a rebellion would be of great advantage to the Allied forces in World War I, and so the British made it known, by various means, that they would support Sharif Hussein and his sons Ali and Faisal in their rebellion. On June 5th, 1916, Arab rebel forces attacked the city of Medina. But after three days, they were routed by the Ottoman garrison there. Regardless, the rebellion was on. By the end of July, Arab rebels had seized several ports, and Britain was able, through these ports, to help equip and support the rebels. And soon thereafter, a British lieutenant who had traveled extensively in the Middle East as a writer and journalist and produced maps and written guides to the region, he was sent to act as the British liaison and advisor to Sharif's son Faisal. That was Thomas Edward Lawrence. Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence joined the rebels on numerous guerrilla operations, disrupting the Ottoman Turks' supply lines and operations and shutting down the railway between the city of Medina and the Ottoman capital of Damascus. And slowly, the rebel forces picked their way towards Damascus. Ultimately, the Ottoman Empire was forced to accept an armistice with the Allied forces in 1918. But the damage had been done. The Ottoman Empire never recovered its stability. Isolated pockets of fighting further destabilized the empire. Internal rebellions and ongoing strife led the desperate Turkish government to appeal to the Allied forces for help. But the Allies were too drained from the war. The war with Greece further chipped away at the empire. The Ottoman Empire was trapped and sinking fast. By 1923, it would be gone from the map entirely. Meanwhile, Lawrence of Arabia was also mired physically and psychologically. The battles had taken their toll. He'd been captured at least once, brutally tortured and scarred. And he had, by his own admission, been forced to commit terrible atrocities for the sake of the war. Though he was considered a hero in both Britain and the Arab world, he declined any honors or recognition. In one stunning moment, he left King George V standing on the dais, holding a medal he'd refused to accept. He was retired from service in 1919. Following that, 
He wrote his memoir, taught at college, and became a staunch supporter of Arab independence from European occupation in the post-war period. He would later serve as an advisor on Arab affairs in the 1920s. And though he became the subject of a number of popular media works at the time, he himself seemed to be at loose ends. He published his memoir, The Seven Pillars of Wisdom, worked teaching young soldiers, did some work on plane design, tried and failed to be reinstated in the military, and drifted back and forth between optimism and despair. And then, in 1935, his soul was claimed once and for all in a motorcycle accident. And that's the image we have of quicksand. Or at least that's the image we used to have. It's this terrible, unrelenting thing. Apparently stable ground that suddenly gives way under your feet. Gradually, slowly, it drags you down. You can't escape. Any attempts to free yourself just trap you further. Your descent is inevitable. And then you're gone. Swallowed by the earth. But is that what it's really like? Well, yes. And no. Mostly no. Quicksand is a natural phenomenon that occurs when loose sandy ground becomes saturated with water. Usually it occurs where there is an ample supply of groundwater, such as an underground spring. But it can also occur on the shores of lakes and rivers and open land that is saturated with snowmelt or runoff. If it's got soil and water, it can turn into quicksand. And that's the thing about quicksand. It's a temporary thing. It comes and goes just as water comes and goes. There are shorelines in the United Kingdom and France that are just lousy with this stuff. But they can't put up signs because the pools of quicksand move every day. You just have to watch out. Problem is, quicksand looks like normal damp ground, or maybe mud. But when you step on it, it turns out that the ground isn't so solid after all. See, quicksand basically flows like a liquid, until it's compressed. So you step on it and start to sink. But as you sink, you force the water out from between the grains of dirt. That has the joint effect of tightening the earth around you, making it more dense and less liquid, and also creating a vacuum that further holds you in place. That's why it has that image of sucking you down, and why it's so hard to escape. By the time quicksand has your foot trapped, it can take the same amount of force to free it as it takes to lift a small car. So that's the true part. You really will sink in quicksand, and it really will trap you. And if you make a lot of big movements, you'll get stuck even harder because you create more of a vacuum and drive more of the water away. But will it swallow you up? No. Most pits of quicksand are only a few feet deep. You can get trapped in quicksand, but you won't get swallowed up by the ground forever. However, quicksand near the seashore can be dangerous because it can trap you as the tide comes in. That does happen. So what do you do about quicksand? Well, the first best way to handle quicksand is to not get trapped in quicksand. You don't sink that fast. It can take five to ten minutes to sink up to your waist. If you start to sink and suspect you're in quicksand, shuffling backwards with minimal motion can let you just back out of the quicksand. Otherwise, sitting or laying down can halt your submergence and allow you to drag yourself to the edge of the pit. If you do manage to sink down to your waist, say, you could be in real trouble. In that case, 
the key is to understand how quicksand works. The thing that has you trapped isn't the quicksand. It's the lack of water to lubricate the sand. Experts suggest that slowly moving your legs and feet in circular motions can clear enough space in the sand to let water flow back in. Gradually, as the sand becomes resaturated, you can slowly and gently work yourself free. Or even lay down and float. Saturated quicksand is buoyant enough that people can float on it. Now, believe it or not, and we have to mention this since we brought up Lawrence of Arabia as the probably patient zero for quicksand entering the American consciousness in the 1960s, believe it or not, you can have dry quicksand. Desert quicksand. Quicksand sands water. What can happen is that high desert winds can force air between loose particles, essentially making a sort of light, airy sand. When you step on that, you force the air out from between the sand, create a vacuum, sink, and get stuck. Even more terrifying, quicksand and quick clay can form during an earthquake. As if earthquakes needed more ways to be terrifying. What happens is the vibration from the earthquake creates space between the grains of soil or particles of clay, which allows water to flow between the particles just like regular quicksand. It's called soil liquefaction. When that happens, underground infrastructure elements like sewer pipes can become buoyant and float, causing them to rise up and rupture the surface. This happened in a 2010 earthquake in Canterbury, New Zealand, when the underground sewers actually broke up out of the street. Meanwhile, heavy surface objects like cars and buildings can sink in the quicksand. A number of buildings were undermined, partially sank in liquefied soil, and collapsed during a 1964 earthquake in Niigata, Japan. Current building codes in earthquake-prone areas now require engineers to consider soil liquefaction when designing major infrastructure elements like bridges, dams, and retaining walls. So that's the truth about quicksand. It's not as deadly as you thought, unless you're already in an earthquake. But it's still pretty scary. And it's no wonder that it saturated American media and the cultural American zeitgeist for so many years. Which is why we're still left wondering, what happened to quicksand? Why don't you see it anymore? Why did the very idea of quicksand seem to swallow itself up and vanish? This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. 